We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Welcome to Hamilton Today here on 900 CHML. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson this afternoon. Uh, We are glad you're along for the ride today. We have got a jam-packed show on a much, 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 much nicer day (laughs) than yesterday was. Yesterday was a disaster. I hope you weren't one of those people who was stuck on the roads. Over one hour on public transportation spent just on Main Street alone. As soon as we got off Main Street, Zoom in home, but on Main Street, over an hour it was awful. It yesterday was disastrous. I mean, it was it was, and it wasn't like the worst snow we've ever had in the history of time. It was just a weird combination and a weird time, and everything was slick. Anyway, hope thankfully today much nicer. Enjoy it because today, tomorrow, the next day, all beautiful. Then Friday, the skies come crashing down upon us again. Just in time for, shall we predict the snow day now? Shall we predict that schools will call a snow day now? Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a betting man and I'm not an odds maker. I'm not a bookie. But I'll give three to one odds on yes, school boards calling a snow day. Because, well, because there's supposed to be some snow and... More importantly, it's a good Friday. It is a Friday guaranteed. It's a, no, I'm moving those odds up. I'm moving them down. It's now even odds. Forget three to one. It's even odds. It's actually less than that. It's one to two. Is that how you do it? Um, I don't a, know. It's going to be a snow day on Friday. Guaranteed Rick it's going to be a snow day. Yeah, it, yeah, Rick is a degenerate gambler. He would know how all about this <laughs> stuff. Uh, guaranteed it's going to be a snow day Friday. So, you know, enjoy today, tomorrow, the next day, and... Anyway, let me tell you what's coming up as we're talking about all the good stuff we've got today. Uh, We're going to be chatting about the cat, cougar, lion, I don't know, mountain lion. Who knows what it was, but something was apparently spotted in Dundas the other day that we don't know what it is. We don't believe it was a Sasquatch, but short of that, we're still waiting to find out. But is this something that we are going to be seeing more of because as we expand and build out, presumably, do we, every time that we do this, do we get either, do we get really more wildlife or do we see for some reason or believe we see more wildlife? We'll get into that. Huge story though. Lots of people, so much internet chatter about this big cat and whether it's real, whether it's a cougar, whether it's something else. We'll get to that one uh, this hour. I don't know if you have been cutting back on your consumption of beer, but if you haven't, you're one of the minority. Beer sales are at their lowest point in over a decade in Ontario, whether it's because people are healthier, whether it's because they've decided for like dry February, whether it's because of the increased taxes, which by the way, liquor tax is going up again in April. Uh, Who knows what the reason might be, but beer sales are really, really down. Why is that? Well, we'll try and find out. Uh, We've got Google being called to the House of Commons committees to explain why they were trying to block the news on some servers, on some uh, computers. Uh, City Council, Don't know if you heard about this. City Council has imposed, has passed a new motion to cap its meetings at a maximum of eight hours. 
No city council meeting will run longer than eight hours. And now they can, if they wish, vote to extend their meeting, which would be an act of true bravery, I suppose. We should applaud them for that. As you are working your overtime to pay your bills, we should apply. Anyway, what? Yeah, what? You did it. You try. I, I'm not. This is one that I don't believe is going to be wildly popular with the public. That council is saying we're not going longer than eight hours. If we have more on the agenda, we're just not going to do it. I get that these meetings are long and grinding. I really do. But I'm not sure that this is going to be a winner with the public. We will talk to Paul, John Paul Danko, counselor for Ward 8, about this one. Uh, in a few months, it is going to become far easier for you to get Canadian citizenship if you don't already have it. In some cases, you will not have to go in front of a citizenship judge. You can do it online. Is this what we want? We want people. We're, we're, we're expanding our immigration. By 2025, we want to have half a million new Canadians coming here every year. Maybe this is the reason. But do we want it to become so much easier or does that devalue what is a very precious thing? And if you think, that's not that precious, come on. No, no, it is. Citizenship in this country is something that is precious. And a lot of people, I think, are going to say, Look, let's not make this like buying on Amazon. You, at the very least, if you are going to become a citizen of this country, you can make the effort to go to a ceremony and do that much. What do you think? We'll get to that one uh, in the 4 o'clock hour. Uh, we've heard about CSIS now, a new report from the Globe and Mail saying that China had planned to donate to the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation to help get the liberals elected. The the troubles with China continue to build for the prime minister and his party. Uh, what do we buy? What do we believe? What do we do about this? We'll get to that one. Uh, 49 years ago today, for, sorry, 40 years ago today, 40 years ago today, amazingly, the series MASH went off the air. It's hard to imagine it could possibly be 40 years. We're going to talk to you in the 5 o'clock hour. What are the best and worst finales of any series ever? There are some fantastic ones. Start thinking about which ones. There's also some absolute dogs. The most disappointing, for me, the most disappointing finale to a great series ever, Dexter. It's like they decided, yeah, you know, we've had a few good years. Let's just absolutely wet the bed on the finale. What are the best and worst? We're going to go to the phones and we're going to talk to you on that one. I love being here in the studio doing a radio show. I love doing it from home sometimes. But today is one of those days that I am sour that we are not on location because I should be at the Hamilton Convention Center today. I am absolutely convinced of this because today is soup fest and I should be down there like everyone else dining on some delicious delicious soup no soup for you <laughs> come back one thank year you. thank you yeah come back one year absolutely thank you Will yes no soup for me but lots of soup for everyone else because it is soup fest for Living Rock uh, joining me right now Karen Craig from Living Rock Karen how are you today Hi, Scott. How are you, Karen? Oh, really good. Oh, uh, man, it's amazing down here. Yeah, I bet. Are you heavy laden with soup as you run around? Is, is, are you filled up with soup from all the different places? I've te- eaten lots, but I still got a lot to go. So I've just been viewing my uh, my my where I vote here. I've got this voting sheet, and we're voting on best soup, best display, most creative soup, and and tastiest heart smart soup. So. I've got a lot to get through, but oh my gosh, Afrolicious, Apothecary um, Kitchen, and that's like she believes in the healing of food. 
uh, Bocce, Restaurante, The Burnt Tongue, Chef Nina, Flamber Hills, Cage Park Diner, The Green Machine, um, Hamilton Convention Center by Carmen's, Kelsey's Original Roadhouse, Royal Botanical Gardens, Stuffed, Thirsty Cactus, and Unruly Smoothie. So it is amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. And Oh my gosh, when the doors opened, the, the crowd just poured in. It's, I am it's, sure. It's so exciting. And we're waiting. Of course, there'll be a lot. There's a bit of a slower time about this time, but then the dinner crew will start coming. And we're open till 7. So come on down. If you don't have your ticket, um, they still can still get tickets at the door. Um, you go through one line a little quicker, maybe, if you have your tickets online. But uh, people are still coming in either way. So it's, um, it's amazing. I think people were so grateful to be able to be back in person we're so grateful to be able to meet friends and network Karen how many years was it off for how many years was it not 21, run 21 okay. um, and we did go through COVID but um, we, you had to go to the restaurants for two years so this okay. is the first time back live so, so I, I don't know I lost track of how many different places you cited there it's got to be f- well, 12 or 15 14. Yeah, 14 are going and then Hottie Biscotti is here as well so you can get treats and yeah, so it's it's um, it's great. Okay, so of all the ones you mentioned, you mentioned a bunch of the places that are making them. I don't know if you are inclined on the air to tell us which one is your favorite because, you know. Yeah, you- I don't think I'm allowed to. I'm still, honestly, I have to taste some others because it's before I make my final decisions. But, um, you know, people are really enjoying Afrolicious. is brand new here, and they did an Afro peanut soup. Um, you know, yeah, it's just, they're all so different. And so what's the most unique is people network, right? So they start telling each other, Oh man, try over here. Like, it's just, you can't help but network because you just like this perm, perm, uh, parsnip apple, like parsnapple soup, uh, at RBG. Like if you like parsnips, like, you know, so people will say, Oh, I don't like mushrooms or whatever, you know, so people, (laughs) yeah, it's people are like, they're all sharing ideas with each other. It's very cool. So what would be the most, if you're not going to say your favorite, and I understand right now, what would be the most unique one that you've come across so far? Well, um, yeah, I, I do think, um, well, I don't see, I don't know. Magic Mushroom I haven't tasted yet. That's <laughs> Yeah, That would have made for an interesting <laughs> interview after Magic Mushroom Soup. <laughs> and Berea, Berea, everyone, some people looked it up and said, Flamborough Hills has this Berea soup. I guess it's a Mexican. And they basically it's like it's everything you'd have in a taco inside. And then there's one that's in a shell. People are really enjoying which one's that. Um, yeah, so there's some really unique, unique things here for sure. Um, and there always is. So it's just, it's just amazing what these people, when you think of like, I'm tired after making a little pot of soup and these guys are making like 170 liters of soup. Um, the group unruly smoothies said they've been cooking for three days. Wow. And then of course coming in last night, I wanted to thank you because the drive home last night, people were driving for more than two hours. You kept my sanity last night. You <laughs> well, kept my good. calm. You were kind. Like you recognized that people were out there. <laughs> trying to get home. It was horrible. At least, you know, it would have been good if you were one of the people making the soup. You might have had some in the car with you and you might have been able to like make your way a little easier with some delicious soup. What? Okay. So this always is, it's for Living Rock Ministry. This is, how many, this has been going on, what, 35 years now, Soup Fest? No, 21, 21 for Soup Fest. Yes. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, <clears throat> it's amazing. And it's, it's our absolute core fundraiser. And, you know, pandemic funding's lifting and we're just, we really want to stay 
seven days a week. We really want to do outreach. We're in five parks in the summer and we're reaching, you know, into the school boards. We've got incredible employment program. Um, Try Rock, if you've got a youth at home that's struggling to find their way and to get back into community and friendship and to find employment readiness skills, we do that at The Rock. We're known for employment. So absolutely engage, encourage, and equip youth. And we are really doing that. And to see the youth find community again, a lot of them have anxiety and they've been sleeping too much and gaming too much and just really need the community of The Rock. And I'll tell you, it's really exciting right now at The Rock. So I really encourage you, if you know a young person, to send them our way. If they've got their high school hours to do, or if they, you know, because you have to do volunteer hours for high school, or if you've got, you know, um, community service hours to do, we really, any, we really love to see youth connect in any way we can. Kids are thrifting at The Rock. There's a new concept of thrifting. And so they come to our rock shop and they buy clothes and stuff with their rock bucks that they earn through work and learning. Nice. Nice. So that we have our own currency at the rock and I'm on the $20 bill, which is just really exciting <laughs> to me. That, that would be, yeah. That's, uh, you know, we Canada can't decide who to put on our five, but at least Living Rock figured out who to put on their 20. So that's uh, that's a good thing. Uh, okay. So if somebody is interested and they're listening right now, it's almost 3.30 and they're thinking, you know, dinner's coming up. Weather out there is way better than yesterday. Yeah. I don't want to cook. Down. I can go and I could I could imagine myself eating some bowls of uh, of unique and delicious soup. Uh, Hamilton Convention Center, 20 bucks a ticket, right? Yes, 20 At the bucks, door. And you get four, four bowls of soup with your ticket, admission ticket. So you've either, either bought it online or you can come down and there is a line for people that, that weren't able to get it online. So that's fine. We also have special judges here that are doing a blind taste test. So they're going to, they also are picking a winner from their perspective. So yeah, that's a really interesting aspect of it too. But yeah, come on down and um, yeah, it's just a great vibe down here and people are loving connecting with each other. So yeah, come on down. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm very envious. A couple of good friends, Jane Allison and Meredith McLeod on your judging committee. I'm uh, I'm very envious of them having to being able to judge uh, the soup fest. So anyway, that's... It's tough uh, too because they don't know what restaurants they're tasting. So this is all by their expertise as... Um, as soupies. Judges. As soupies. Yeah. There you go. Soupies, yeah. That is... Uh, but yeah, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, that name. Uh, Karen Craig from Living Rock, really appreciate it. Good luck today, and I uh, really appreciate you taking yeah, a few check minutes. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram, Living Rock Youth Resources. Thanks yeah, and livingrock.ca for tickets today. Yeah, uh, thanks, Karen. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Scott. Okay, take care. That is Soup Fest down at the convention center. If you do need something to do for dinner tonight and you don't want to cook and you want something that's delicious, there you go. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. There have been over the weekend numerous reports, apparently, of a large creature, a large cat-like animal spotted in the Dundas area near York Road in Dundas. And I could only assume that if someone thought it was significant enough and they were reasonably sure enough that it was worth calling animal control that they saw something. Right. I mean, you don't probably call and especially multiple people don't call unless they saw something. The question is, what might they have seen? Chris Dial is the co-owner of Raiders Wildlife Control joins us now. Chris, how are you? Not bad yourself, Scott. I am terrific. Thanks for doing this. So 
All right. I'm living in Dundas. I see something that prompts me to be concerned enough that I make the call. I look up animal control and I call and it's more than one person. What possibly could they have seen? Well, I mean, with an interior, I mean, it's tough to say, right? I mean, we've got three species that it could be. It could be the bobcat, it could be the lynx, or it could be the cougar. Um, a lot of people will most likely go to the cougar as their first choice of animal they thought they saw, um, which is going to be the lowest probability of any of the three that they could have saw. Um, but yeah, the first thing you should do in any instance, as long as you're not in any you know, immediate danger, is call Hamilton Animal Control, uh, which can easily be found at the Hamilton.ca. Um, you know, and this isn't the first instance that you know we've heard of anybody you know seeing cougars or think they saw a cougar or a bobcat or lynx. It goes back many many years. You know, there was even DNA found in the Waynefleet bog, um, I think it was four or five years ago. But there seems to be these, these odd, you know, these odd viewings of them uh, and some other species as well, too. Um, you know, there's a black fox that exists and a lot of people don't even know it exists. Uh, I've personally seen one myself. And uh, so you, we are seeing a lot more of these species uh, viewed, you know, take you back to December of 2021, uh, the 14 wild boar that were on the Pickering Go Station platform, right? So, you know, to kind of dismiss this isn't the right thing to do, but again, and obviously, I think MNR as well as uh, Hamilton Animal Control are looking into it. Um, I, I haven't seen any uh, concrete evidence or footage of it. Um, but like you, I've heard that there's been a lot of reports um, starting uh, last Friday, I think it was. Okay, so the idea then when you listed off the bobcat and the lynx and the cougar yeah. as possibilities, do are they in this area so that that is a realistic possibility that it could have been one? Or would it be a real stretch for something like that to be around here? Uh, the latter of the two, it would be a real stretch because they're not native to this area, right? Um, and But again, we've heard instances of bears and moose making their way down from up north. These species are, are you know, supposed to be contained up north, um, but again, there's no concrete barrier for, for animals to, just like the wild boar in Pickering. Um, nobody has ever reported 14 boar uh, in Pickering, right? So uh, again... Uh, you know, there's obviously a probability associated with seeing them down here. Um, extremely rare, but it's not an impossibility. What's the strangest animal sighting that you've ever heard about? <laughs> um, again, you know, it, it, you don't come across a lot of these, you know, uh, anomalies, but uh, the black fox is a bit of an interesting one. I think that blog.to had, uh, had reported one back in October of 20 or 21. Um, and again, I'll ask you, Scott, have you ever seen a black fox yourself? I've seen a fox in this yeah. area. I don't know if I've I don't know if I've seen a black fox. Yeah, there's and mo- 99% of people you ask won't even know that they exist. Um, I live out in Stony Creek, and um, that's where our company's located. Um, and I saw one on my street, and I've got video of it. It's on our Instagram, and uh, I, the amount of calls that were generated from that post, um, not even knowing the thing existed, and uh, you know, and and there, and we've seen a couple more since then. That was a couple years. Do they back. look like a fox? They look exactly like like a fox they're fully black with a white tipped tail like a skunk um oh. and uh it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing because no one even knows they exist so i'd say that would be you know, probably one of the top ones um you know we do have some flying squirrels in the area uh closer to the escarpment out grimsby way which is another species a lot of people don't know exist um but for the most part you know it's your run mill species like your raccoons 
and whatnot that uh, we're getting calls for. Okay, so when someone does call animal control and say, I saw a cougar, and and you're right, they usually say cougar. I don't know why that one comes to mind (laughs) first. But when someone says, I saw a cougar, you know, if someone calls and says, I saw a UFO, we go, yeah, okay, sort of, what were you smoking? But exactly. when you say, when you, when, when you hear that someone calls and says, I saw a cougar, do you believe that they saw something that was mysterious? I, I do, because I know it's a possibility. And as I mentioned before, the, the only concrete evidence we have um, is that DNA that was actually found in the Wayne Fleet bog, I think it was four or five years ago. So that's factual, okay? Um, and again, there isn't any concrete borders that can you know, control these species from making their way down there. Um, and they like to travel train tracks and whatnot. And as you know, the train tracks connect every single province and you know, high and low of any province within the country. Um, so again, you know, what, what, the, what the actual animal control within Hamilton does in relation to reaching out to Ministry of Natural Resources and whatever that said conversation is, uh, you know, we're not privy to that. Um, but I know that they would obviously want to know. And uh, if anybody were to call us, uh, we would do the exact same thing as refer them to call the, the animal control of whatever city they're calling from. Is this a better time of year for spottings? And I don't mean a better time of year as in there's a better chance for you to see one. Is mm-hmm. this a better chance for the experts? Because if there's a chance that somewhere there might be snow on the ground, is there not a good chance you'll see a paw print, which would then tell you what it really was? Well, well, sorry, we'll we'll kind of divide that question up. It'll tell you, it'll give you evidence that, you know, you have seen a species. Um, Will it tell you exactly what species that is? I mean, it's going to be kind of hard because... You know, there's going to be wind blowing and there's going to be ice. And, you know, as you know, this recent winter storm we've just had um, has been a bit messy. But, yeah, I mean, if you see a, a, a paw print in the snow, that's not your average size paw print. I mean, yes, I think part of that, too, was some of the was some of the reports were based on a paw print. OK, um, so, yeah, there gives you more, I guess, more evidence. It's almost like having talcum powder on the ground, um, which is a technique that a lot of wildlife companies use to kind of figure out which print of the animal it is. So, yeah, it will give you a bit more, you know, gumption, something to hold on to in terms of, okay, well, we know we have something here. We know the size of the paw is X centimeters and relative to what other animals we're used to seeing, it does seem to be a bit bigger. Chris Dial, co-owner of Raiders Wildlife Control. Really appreciate you doing this today, Chris. Thanks for it. No worries at all, Scott. Have a good one. You as well. So, okay, so people saw in all likelihood something. I must admit, though, when just in that last answer for Chris, the the 13-year-old in me, thought, you know what, we should go get a giant cat paw impression thing and at night walk it around so the neighbors see these enormous paw prints. (laughs) Don't do that. It's it's not a good idea. I didn't actually just suggest that. I was just throwing it out there as a, you know, if I was 13, that's maybe what would go through my head. Or do it and, you know, give everyone something to, no, don't do it. Don't do it. What we are going to do, though, right now is we're going to go to the 900 CHML Newsroom, where Dave Woodard, who has never played a prank because he is the most mature person in Hamilton, right? Correct. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Canadians, Statistics Canada reports Canadians sold, drank fewer beer per capita than they have in decades, in a long time last year. Uh, other alcohol drinks down wine experienced its largest decline since tracking began in 1949. Beer sales down 2.8%. Wine sales fell 4%. Why is this? 
Why are we drinking less? Are we really drinking less or are we just drinking different things? Dan Malik is health sciences professor at Brock University, and he's an author of Try to Control Yourself, the Regulation of Public Drinking in Post-Prohibition Ontario. Dan, how are you today? I am well. How are you? I'm excellent, thank you. Uh, so are we drinking less or are we drinking different things than wine and beer? It looks like it's a little bit of both um, because, the as, as you noted, the sales are down, but when you look at the volumes numbers, they're not as down as much. But also um, what seems to be happening and really uh, I haven't been able to, to carve this up well enough as I'd like to, is that cider and coolers and things like that seem to be on the rise in the same way that alcohol is on a decline. So if we're looking at um, the, the, the amount of cider um, per capita consumed has risen significantly in the last five years, cider, cider coolers and those sorts of things, right? Other drink, alcoholic drinks that aren't wine, spirits, or beer. But beer has declined, and it seems to be related in some way. I'll have to talk to some of my more stat-savvy colleagues to really dig into this. But that, to me, seems to be like, and we've seen this, right? We've seen a huge increase in cider uh, in the market. For example, like yeah, and that's, that sounds there. like a younger audience with the coolers yeah. and cider, I would think. Yeah, it could be. And, and I mean, I don't know enough about consumer preferences, but we've also seen a lot of sort of sweeter kind of fruity yeah, yeah. beers being um, brewed as well. So there could be sort of a taste shift. Although what's interesting is that we have also seen the numbers of, what is it, Gen Z, no, no, maybe millennials now drinking less. So there could actually be a, a, a generational decline in drinking. Yeah, um, it's it's very same. it's very puzzling, and I'll tell you why it's puzzling. Because when you when you look at the number of coolers and cider, again, you're saying, okay, that sounds like it's a a little more of a sweeter drink, almost like a you know, well, like almost drinking pop, but with an alcoholic form. So maybe tastes are changing, and then. At the same time, don't haven't we heard over the last number of years that the craft beer industry is growing and growing, and those tend to be very hoppy and very bitter and very opposite of cider or coolers. So it's it's like you're branching into two distinct things here. Yeah, I don't know if that's really the case anymore. I mean, that's where um, craft beer began, right? Sort of in the classics, like the IPAs and that. But these days, the so-called New England IPA, those cloudier, sweeter, based on a lot of sort of like New Zealand hops and new innovative hops that are very tropical flavored, their bitterness is disappearing. I was talking to a beer judge who said he was at a he was a beer writer and a beer judge who was at a um, competition and the beer judge beside him set down an IPA, a classic West Coast IPA and said, oh, it's way too, it's way too hoppy. It's way too bitter. And the, my friend turned to him and said, that's what, that's the, that's the style. But the style, people have started to see IPAs as being more fruity and, and that sort of thing, which isn't, uh, isn't really the, the uh, so is isn't isn't really following that model that you're suggesting anymore. So let me throw something that could be sacrilegious at you. Is there a chance that the whole craft beer thing was because a lot of people said that this was the cool thing to do and this was the elite thing to do and this was the you know if you if you that it wasn't necessarily that I loved it but I know that there was you know cachet involved with drinking this and somehow now we're allowed to drink what we really like to drink. 
It could be. I, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of craft, there's there's a, this interesting thing with craft brewing and it, and that term itself is problematized by a lot of people like what is craft, mm-hmm. but where you get some sort of small batch brewers, for example, who are brewing, you know, basically lagers and pilsners that are very accessible. And then you've got some brewers who are brewing really complex beers. And then there's a lot of like people doing both. So I don't know. So craft beer, what's happening is it's carving out a niche from the big brewers. But I think what we're also seeing, and this is really early days to to be able to determine this, is that there's other, like the, the rise of craft beer has led to the rise of craft cider, right? Because there are people who are gluten intolerant yeah, yeah, or like yeah. said, don't like the bitterness, or it's also very local, right? Apple, pear, that sort of thing that is is adding to that market and maybe cutting into the beer market again like we we don't have the numbers of craft beer versus like mass market beers right so it'll be interesting to see how that breaks down as well there is another element that is looming in the on the horizon here with all of this and that is come april 1st it's our annual tax increase on mm-hmm. alcoholic drinks now this is um this is a tax that is essentially baked into the tax system now where it automatically it's an elevator tax so every year it automatically kicks in and this is this is really over a, a doesn't take a long time for this to really have an impact on what alcoholic drinks cost is this do you expect that in time if not already this is going to move people away from these drinks because they just become too pricey yeah that's really tough to say i mean if if because it affects all alcohol all forms of alcohol it might i mean one of the things we saw in the stats can sort of the qualifiers is that it doesn't cover brew your own stuff and homebrew stuff but i don't know if that market is growing but you know so people want booze they're gonna pay for it but it but those sorts of taxes do have kind of a an effect on people who might not have as much fluidity, you know, that may not have as much money. So sometimes people argue that those taxes really discriminate against poorer people, right, who might who have a right to have a beer as well, right. Um, So, so it it could, it could cause that and, and they are certainly more acceptable because they are so, I mean, they're they're more publicly acceptable because they're so-called sin taxes. They're not mm-hmm. essentials. Um, but I know that the industry is very concerned about the number of hits on their uh, on their business from various sides, not only from the taxation side, but also from public health. Yeah, audiences. six 6.3%. Uh, it's mm-hmm. scheduled to go up April 1st. Uh, Dan Malik, health sciences professor at Brock and author. Uh, go look up his book, Try to Control Yourself, The Regulation of Public Drinking in Post-Prohibition Ontario. Dan, thanks so much for doing this today. My pleasure. Cheers. You know who can't get no satisfaction? The woman in Manitoba who called 911 to the RCMP because the line at Burger King was too long. (laughs) Now, you know, I'm no expert on policing, but I'm reasonably sure that's not a valid reason to call 911, that you're having to wait too long in the drive-thru line. I get that it's Manitoba. It's probably very cold. Maybe the heater in her car wasn't working. Maybe she was hangry. I don't know. Maybe she just had a real hankering for a Whopper. I'm not really sure. But yes, calling 911 to the RCMP to report the line at Burger King is a little too extensive. I don't think they're used to lines in Manitoba because there's a sum total of like five people that live there. <laughs> well, I think it's a little more than that, but nonetheless, it's um, maybe that's maybe that's it too. Maybe she's never had to wait in a line. And so she was thinking, what's going on? There must be something awry if there's a line here at my Burger King. I don't know. 
But the RCMP sent out a tweet um, reminding the people out there that 911 is only for emergencies. We realize you aren't you when you're hangry, but this is not a valid reason to dial 911. Well, you know, we've probably all had a moment where we've been so hungry that that person in front of us in line was just pushing all of our buttons by taking so long. And, you know, anyway. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The CEO of Google and a number of other top executives are being summoned to appear before a parliamentary committee in Ottawa. This follows the company deciding to temporarily block some Canadians from accessing news through its search engine. This all spins off of a... Uh, a, a bill that would require Google and other companies, Facebook and others, to have to pay media companies for the news that they put on their site and repurpose but don't currently pay for. So the, the, the newspapers or the radio stations or whatever else who write news, their stuff gets – they have to pay to produce it and these big companies then put it out there and – get all the advertising. That, see, that's the, the thought behind this and why the bill is in place. Um, Google has here in this test done what they've done in some other countries and said, okay, then, well, we won't have any news. Hmm. Uh, we'll see what that comes, what, what comes of those parliamentary hearings. Uh, Peter Julian is the NDP MP for New Westminster, BC. He is also the NDP critic for Canadian Heritage. He joins us now. Mr. Julian, thank you for this today. Oh, great. Great to be with you. Thanks for joining me. This is, this is, um, I want to say up front, by the way, that I have a probably more of a vested interest in this than some because in my other job, I write for the newspaper here in town, the Hamilton Spectator. So, I mean, I, I get the importance of this for sure, personally, because, and you do too, I'm sure, that all these companies that are paying all the money to create all this news and then getting so little of it when it goes online, this is a huge problem. It, it, it sure is. And, and a shout out to the Hamilton Spectators, one of the best uh, papers in, in the country. And uh, of course, Hamilton's renowned. You've got Matthew Green, fantastic MP from Hamilton Center. But what we've seen across the country in Hamilton and places like my riding, New Westminster Burnaby, is there's been an erosion of local news because you've seen big technology companies, big tech basically taking uh, the lion's share of the advertising. Uh, what that has meant in my community is... We, we lost half the local newspapers. And so what C18 is is designed to do, as other countries have done, is to put back into place a financing structure. So it's not just big tech uh, basically vacuuming money out of the community. It's um, big tech being forced to, to pay for the news that they use and that they profit from. Uh, because of of people's engagement uh, online, often that that news produced by the Spectator or any other local publication uh, then uh, serves a purpose for big tech in terms of uh, heightening their profits, but they haven't had to contribute. And that's the goal of C18 to to ensure that they have to contribute for the local news across the country. Now, this has worked a bill like this, not this exact bill, obviously, but a bill like this has had 
mixed results because I believe in Australia, Google and Facebook, I think, negotiated with Australian media to come up with a deal. But in other countries, they essentially, as Spain, I believe, they said, well, that's fine. You don't want to let us have access for free. We just won't give the news. So do we run the risk here in Canada of Google actually taking that latter step and simply saying, fine, you know what? If we have to pay, we're not interested. We're out. You're out. Well, I, I think actually the 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 examples that you're giving uh, show the importance of putting this kind of structure into place. In Australia, what's happened is there's been a really re- a re- revival of local news, uh, including the rural publications uh, in in rural Australia that were really struggling to make ends meet. So the Country Press, which was a group of local publications, got together, and, and they're now getting funding for journalism. Uh, other countries have uh, put put this into place as well. And, and yes, it's true. In some cases, you've seen big tech react. And in Australia, they tried to withdraw their services. But ultimately, they come back because they're still making money. And they uh, their business plan and has to involve being socially responsible. They they haven't been in Canada in the past. They haven't been compelled to. Uh, C18 is now one way of making sure that they have to pay for local journalism that they actually ultimately benefit from. And that that's why I've, I've no doubt, despite the Google's temper tantrum uh, and the, the backlash that has happened against Google as a result, I, I have no doubt that they uh, will continue to make money in Canada. And, and that's why they, they will have to follow uh, the rules like uh, every other Canadian has to, and, and make sure that they're contributing to local journalism. And that means a revival in Hamilton. It means a revival of, of local news in, in British Columbia, right across this country. We need more local journalists. And, and this is a great way of, of having uh, the stories about, uh, about our community being, uh, being brought, uh, brought forward because we have big tech uh, who has taken so much of the advertising revenue actually uh, being being pushed to put back and fund local journalism. You said that they would follow the rules like other Canadians, except they're not Canadians. So, and another word you used was compelled. Can they be compelled to do this because they are not Canadian? Uh, yes, yes, absolutely, they can. And the Australia example is uh, is a is a great example. When you've got an obligatory process, yes, they can be compelled. Are they Canadian or not? Um, I, I'm saying that Canadians follow the rules. That's part of what's mm. made our country great. Uh, big tech has tried to get around the rules. Uh, now their rules will be put into place that will uh, oblige them to fund local journalism. That can only be a benefit to all of us. What we're seeing online, and, and this is something that uh, a number of people have raised. Uh, Matthew Green's been uh, a big part of this as well. We're seeing more uh, hate online. The big tech companies are not uh, not in any way trying to to push down on. In fact, in many many respects, they actually profit from the engagement of of hate as well. Uh, part of the way we break through those barriers and and this increasing toxic hate that we're seeing uh, from some players online is by making sure people in the community know about each other. 
that means local journalism. The the role that this radio station plays, the role that that the dailies and weeklies play, whether it's the Spectator or any other publication that serves the Hamilton area, that, telling us stories about each other help to break down the barriers, help to push aside that hate, and it helps to build solidarity in a community. And, and that's why it's so important that we actually oblige the big tech mm. that makes billions of dollars to actually start to reinvest locally, so we can tell those stories to each other and rebuild that local community solidarity. I have to jump in for just a sec because we are really short on time, but I only have 15 seconds. Is there any obligation on them to show up? Must they show up f- to speak to co- the parliament or can they say no? It's a summons, which means it's obligatory. Now, the summons only applies in Canada, uh, but even if you're based outside the country, if you want to come to Canada, you, you can't ignore that summons. Okay. Really uh, very much appreciate this. Peter Julian, who is the MP, the NDP MP for New Westminster Burnaby. Thank you so much for the time today. Very much appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for your work in serving the community. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Hamilton City Council has come up with a... A new motion. They passed the motion that would cap meeting lengths at eight hours. Now, they could vote to extend it, but right now the, the there would not be meetings beyond eight hours. This is in response to some meetings, especially in the term of the last council that went 10 hours, 11 hours. I think there was even a 12-hour, 13-hour one in there once or twice. But is this a good move? I mean, certainly I think we can sympathize with people sitting there for 10 or 11 hours. But should council be doing this or is this going to antagonize people who at a time when it costs a lot to live are probably doing overtime themselves and working long hours? Well, let me go to someone who was one of the people speaking against this around the council table. John Paul Dank, a Ward 8 councillor, joins us now. Councillor, thank you for this. Thanks for having me on, Scott. Uh, you were one of the ones who spoke against this, saying not only that you didn't really see the point, uh, but also that you said, and this is a quote that was attributed to you, that um, that it's rare that this happens and there's a, quote, certain public expectation that you around the table will get the work done. Is that a fair assessment of your view? Yeah, I think from my perspective, um, we were all elected to do a job. And I think that the hardworking taxpayers of Hamilton expect us to do what is necessary to get that job done. And if that means uh, sitting in a meeting for longer than eight hours, I I think taxpayers expect us to do that because um, that's necessary in order to move forward with the city business. Uh, I, I think as a council, we all agree that long meetings for just the sake of having a long meeting is, is not the best use of our time. Um, I'll, I'll admit uh, at the end of a, a really long meeting that's uh, got some important issues on the agenda, I am just completely mentally drained. It does take quite a bit out of you. Um, but, you know, I think we all knew what we were signing up to when uh, when we were elected. And that's just the, the nature of it, that there are, at times, really important issues uh, that do take quite a bit uh, of time on debate. And, uh, you know, to your column today in The, in the Spectator, if, if we're really serious about shortening meetings, 
uh, you know, that's on us as counselors. We, we don't have to talk to every issue. We don't need to grandstand. Uh, we can be more concise with how we use our time and setting an arbitrary limit uh, on, on the meeting length, I, I think really doesn't change anything because it comes down to self-regulation at the end of the day. Well, I mean, I think so. I wrote that call today, as you mentioned, but I, I do wonder, and let's, let me give the other side, let me be fair to the other side here. If you say it's going to be an eight-hour meeting at most, is this going to have that effect of forcing or encouraging or motivating counselors to go, well, we've got to get it in under eight hours now, so I'm not going to talk as much? I don't think it'll have any impact whatsoever on, um, you know, meeting lengths because, uh, again, you know, we still have the items on the agenda that we have to reach decisions on in a timely manner. And if we don't make the decision at that meeting, it gets bumped to a future meeting, which makes that, that meeting that much longer. Um, I think you use the analogy of, you know, sitting through three, the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy. I would say some of these meetings is like sitting through a movie that you hate <laughs> on repeat about four or five times in a row. Um, so, you know, there, there, is, there are reasons to, to shorten that out. Um, I think the points that the mayor and Councillor Nan made were really valid in that when you have childcare, uh, it, it, when there's unpredictability in your schedule, I think it makes it very difficult. Uh, to plan. That's something that, you know, I've ran into as a parent, certainly. Um, but at the end of the day, again, you know, it, it comes down to us as counselors that we're concise with the questions that we ask, that we're not just uh, speaking on an item for the sake of speaking on an item. You know, last term, there were certain counselors that had a, a reputation, we'll say, yes, um, for going on the speaker's list, you know, two, three, four times on the same item, speaking against it, and then voting in favor at the end of the day. And, you know, things like that, that's, that's not a, a, an effective use of anybody's time. Uh, but at the same time, they have a right as an elected official to do that. And, uh, and that behavior is on us as counsel. Let me throw something totally wild at you. And I actually was going to include this in the column, and then I took it out because I thought, I don't know if it really fits. But uh, I, And I'm, I think this is bonkers, but at the same time, I'm going to throw it at you. I was thinking about a chess clock. And I think most people understand how a chess clock works in a game where there's a certain amount of time at the beginning where it's loaded. And when you start talking, you press the button, the clock starts ticking. And at the when you stop talking, you press the button and it stops. And if, let's say, everyone started with 20 minutes at the beginning of a meeting, and when you can use your 20 minutes however you want, but when that 20 minutes is gone, it's gone. Is that something, I, as, I mean, it's not that exact example perhaps, but is there a way to to put something in that would simply say you've got a certain amount of time every meeting to talk and once it's gone, that's up? Or is that anti-democratic? I think technically that's already covered in the procedural rules of order. Uh, we are limited to a five-minute five speaking time. And technically, you're not supposed to be able to speak on an item more than once, except for uh, clarification on your initial uh, comments. So, you know, through the chair, you know, we could tighten that up a little bit. I think having a total time that you're allowed to speak in an entire meeting, um, yeah, that, that, that would limit uh, debate on some items. And, you know, some of the meetings that go long, when I'm thinking about last term, those were meetings that we were discussing, you know, Red Hill Expressway or Shadow uh, um, Creek and, and Coots Paradise. It, you know, really big, important topics that, you know, you really have to go through the time to, to get sure. to a resolution. And, and look, and I don't think that there is a single person in this city, at least I hope there isn't, 
that believes that debate on real issues and questions on real issues are not valuable. Though they absolutely are, and I don't think that anyone should be so cynical to say nothing that is said or asked around the council table is worthwhile. That that's absolutely not the case. They are. It's a question of how do you tighten things up. And and to the other point you made about if the meeting runs past eight hours and it gets cut off, this becomes very difficult, doesn't it? It's not just because now you have to have another meeting, but you have meetings essentially every day. So if a, if a, if a council meeting that needs another two hours is cut off at eight hours and it has to be done because certain things that council votes on have to be put in by a certain time, you now have to squeeze that in somewhere else where other people have other commitments. It becomes a real scheduling nightmare, doesn't it? Absolutely. Our meeting schedule is set basically a year in advance, and it's not just a a matter of bumping the meeting to the next day or or a couple days, because we also have to advertise in advance. There's legislative requirements for how long agendas have to be published. So it becomes that much more difficult. And, you know, I think to your point, when we started this discussion about other uh, workers in the city, Hamilton, that are working, you know, two or more jobs just to make ends meet, I think for us as counselors, it's a, it's a little precious, in my opinion, to say, oh, you know, hold on, I'm, I'm sitting in my comfortable chair at my desk, but I can't work more than eight hours. Um, it, but that's, again, that's my opinion. Um, overall, you know, there's no question that it would be much more efficient uh, to have shorter meetings, but uh, how we get there is, I think we already have the rules in place to do that. So we'll see how how often we end up invoking the, the eight-hour limit. I don't think it's going to come up that often. John Paul Danka, Ward 8 Council. Appreciate the time today. Thank you for this. Anytime. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. If you are someone who comes to this country and Canada is looking to add 500,000 new Canadians through immigration by 2025. So if you're one of those people and you come here and you want to become a Canadian, the chances are that it may be becoming easier. Starting as early as June, some new Canadian citizens can take the oath without the need of a citizenship judge. They will be able, apparently, to do this online. I want to bring in Daniel Bernhardt. He's the CEO of the Institute for Canadian Citizenship, who joins us now. Daniel, thank you for this. Hey, good afternoon. Really appreciate you doing this because this, to me, is... um, This is a tricky one because we want, obviously, our government processes to be able to be done more easily. Heaven knows we saw during COVID people couldn't get passports and other things. We'd like the process to be able to be smooth. And yet, as I hear this, and maybe you share this, maybe you don't, my particular view, Canadian citizenship is very precious. And the idea of doing this, sitting at your computer and printing it out, just seems almost to devalue it. I, I, th- I think so. I mean, you're approaching this from, I think, the right balance. You know, the government's under a lot of pressure to speed up processing times. During the pandemic, uh, Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada got a backlog of applications, everything from international students to citizenship, of almost 2.8 million people who were waiting in line. And so about a year ago, the government said, we're going to do all this stuff to speed things up. And this was one of the things that they announced. I think that while we do want everything to go faster, you're entirely right. This is a this is a once in a lifetime very special moment. And our organization, we host 
uh, almost 60 citizenship ceremonies a year, and these are profoundly emotional every single time. So this is kind of like um, getting your university degree but not having the graduation ceremony, like just getting it mailed to you. Yeah, you still completed the degree, but you're missing something really special, that moment of celebration and reflection and recognition. So I would hope that this option of the written, the written attestation, just swearing online, can be reserved for some really extreme cases, but that we preserve the Canadian tradition of these citizenship ceremonies are so beautiful and essential. Uh, your your comparison is very good, by the way, about missing out on your university. Both my kids graduated university over COVID and were not able to have a graduation ceremony, and I think they both missed out on that, and I and they both received their degree in the mail, but it's not the same. It's not the same as having that moment, even if it's just walking across a stage, there is something about that walk across the stage that you've accomplished something. And I don't know if we consider getting citizenship accomplishing something, but you've certainly received something and there's some value there in doing that in person, I believe. Oh, you definitely accomplished something. I mean, look, my, my family came to Canada in the 1970s, and we've been on the run, on the move for years. When my daughter was born, she was the first person in our family to be born in the same country as her parents in almost 150 years. Mm. And that's not a unique story. Canadian citizenship means so much to us. It's peace, it's prosperity. And that moment of becoming a citizen, is a, it's a one-way door that you go through and no matter your past, your future and your children's future and their children's future belongs is, is, is Canadian, that, you know, they will be Canadian and welcome here unconditionally. People recognize that moment. So your university journey is a four year journey. Well, I presume your kids finish in, <laughs> in four yeah. years. Um, it, it tends to be a four year journey. This for many people can be a journey of 40 you know, years longer. It's a, it's a whole lifetime. And they're now looking forward to a whole lifetime of future generations enjoying this benefit. That's, that is just so, it's so profound and it's special. And I think it says also a lot about Canada that we value them becoming citizens. You know, there are countries in Europe where you do the citizenship test and then you go to a police station to sign a document to receive your citizenship. Like, that is, that is actually a common experience. And here we have a party. Or, or, or at least something kind of approximate. Sure. That. Every, That's something really special. we got to preserve it. E- every, uh, is it July 1st? I think it's usually every July 1st. You will have, well, it'll be on the 2nd, but you'll see the front page of so many newspapers where you've got these people with a citizenship judge holding the little Canadian flag. And it, yeah. it really is. And you know what else? It's not just meaningful to them. And I think this is the other thing we may miss out on. This is... What you just described, and you did it very well, you did it very aptly, but you described coming somewhere and getting something. Those of us who were born here, I was born here, it's easy to forget what we've got. And so when you have these reminders of seeing these other people who have come here and we see these photos or we see the a clip of it on TV, it is an annual reminder of, look what these people fought to come here that you've got. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you talk about Canada Day. This past Canada Day, we did a citizenship ceremony in Halifax. And our guest of honor um, was a bagpiper. And he played the bagpipes and did this procession and walked and sat on the stage. And then the citizenship judge said, and now to um, deliver the oath of citizenship, I introduce the Minister of Immigration. And the bagpiper stood up. <laughs> the, the Minister of Immigration, Sean Fraser, played the bagpipes wow. for everybody on Canada Day. 
They enjoyed them, themselves. They had a great time. This guy is a minister of the crown and is, is here to welcome them and to have fun and to participate in the ceremony, to even, to even play music for them. You can't believe how special it was. And just like you said, not for them, but the ceremony was outside. Also for all the onlookers who gathered on the pier. So this is a very special situation. I understand there are bureaucratic problems. There are people who have been waiting over two years for their citizenship to come through. Their permanent residence expires and they can't leave the country because they won't be able to get back in. <laughs> um, they can't go visit sick relatives because they're waiting. I understand why people want the process to go faster. I want the process to go faster too. I just hope that the government can find those. Yeah, just don't cheapen it. Don't cheapen it. That's the only thing. Uh, Daniel Bernhardt, CEO of the Institute for Canadian Citizenship. Really appreciate the thoughts today. Thanks for doing this, Daniel. Thanks for telling this story. Last week, we learned, thanks to the Globe and Mail uh, and some... Uh, some documents that it had seen from CSIS, our security agency, that uh, according to CSIS, according to that group, that China had targeted a number of ridings in this country and tried to help liberals win a minority government by helping certain liberal candidates win. That's a, that is a troubling story for sure. I mean, down in the States for four years plus, they were tied in knots with the idea that a foreign country, i.e. Russia, had helped elect Donald Trump. You can't have outside countries exerting influence to try and affect an election. That was what the entirety of Donald Trump's presidency in a lot of ways was tied up with. Well, here you now have this story of a foreign country, a problematic foreign country, possibly affecting our elections. That was troubling. Well, today, the Globe and Mail back with another bombshell. China appears to have, according to the story, put in motion a plan to donate a million dollars to the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation. And that money would then be repaid. It would have been given by a billionaire and then repaid by the Chinese government. Presumably, I assume, to try and curry favor. Let me bring in Gordon Holden. He is the Director Emeritus of the China Institute and a Professor of Political Science with the University of Alberta. Uh, thank you for this today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So uh, I thought that the last story that we learned from the Globe was going to be enormous. It sort of had some legs, but not really what I expected. I was kind of surprised. So I don't know what I expect from this one, but are we reaching a point with influence peddling and China being involved in our politics, that the government is going to have no choice but to call an inquiry into this and see what's going on? Well, I think at a minimum, there's going to be extensive discussion in committees, both Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee, but also in the uh, China Committee. I think that's the minimum. It's possible the government may feel sufficient pressure that they have to have a parliamentary inquiry. One of the challenges they're going to face, however, given that these are based on leaks of top-secret, perhaps higher information from CSIS, not every MP has a, has a sufficient um, security clearance to examine that material. But there's a way around that, presumably. Certain MPs um, have that clearance or could be given that clearance. That's a technical issue. But your point to which I respond directly is, yes, I think the pressure will continue to build, and it will have to be the combination of committees, or an actual parliament inquiry of some sort. The, I can't imagine that this is not 
if not a worst case scenario for the prime minister, a bad one. Because if you go back to the beginning of his time as liberal leader, one of the quotes that has been played very often is, uh, you know, that he liked the idea of a dictatorship of sorts, a Chinese dictatorship to get things done. I've, I'm, I'm not quoting him directly, but I think people will remember that quote. So there was already this idea, I think, in a lot of people's minds in this country that the prime minister was sympathetic to China. And now these things are coming out. They all seem to, whether they are or not, they seem to line up into this story that eventually, if the other parties are any good at politics whatsoever, are going to be able to hammer the liberals with, aren't they? I think this one has legs. And one of the complications is that if it was one discrete thing, I think it'll get media attention at a certain time, it might then disappear and simply be one of those things that people might bring up again, perhaps closer to an election. The problem with China is it generates negative stories on an ongoing basis. And that really is, we've seen you know, in the China Institute polling over the years, just a steady decline to rock bottom on positive views of China. And I don't think that's going to end anytime soon. So this, to me, it's, it's a thing in themselves, uh, but it's also the way it just folds into a, a steady drumbeat of negativism about China, which will ensure at least on foreign policy terms that it remains a live issue for some time to come. Generally, in my opinion, elections aren't decided in Canada on foreign policy issues. Rarely is that the case. Perhaps with the free trade agreement discussion way back in the 80s. But I think in this case, uh, we have seen far from the end of it, and we don't know how much material the Global Mail has stocked up. Mm. Yeah. Well, so maybe I don't know if you can answer this question. I don't know that this is your area of expertise, but I'm going to ask it because I I have no idea. It, the idea of donating to the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation, do we know that Justin Trudeau would have had access? The, that's sort of the assumption here is that if we're going to donate to this, it's going to curry favor because he's going to know that there was a big donation to his foundation from someone and therefore there's a quid pro quo or something. Do, do we know how this works or what the idea behind this was? You, you're quite right. I have a better sense of the Chinese side. I, I have no doubt that a donation on that side, if what the Global Mail reports is accurate based on an exercises um, analysis is accurate, that this would have been a way to um, be seen to be something positive that might positively affect the foundation, hence some indirect benefit to the to China through that association. It's hard to imagine a donation that size would go unnoticed. To me, this some of the solutions are, are just so obvious. Um, it, again, this is not my area, just the China side, but if you're, uh, it minimum ought to be in my view, if you're a foundation or a think tank, Trudeau Foundation, McDonald Laurier Foundation, China Institute where I work, uh, any of those ought to um, post donations once a year if they're above a certain minimal amount, I don't want to make too much bureaucracy here, but let's say largest donations over $1,000, whatever, um, so that the public and the journalists can look at that every year and make their own decisions as to whether they think it's untoward. Alternatively, and perhaps in combination, a set of rules that make it clear that if the um, donation comes from X countries or perhaps from any country, uh, that it is, um, if it appears to be aimed at gaining influence, then it'd be shut down. To me, transparency is the real thing that, that's missing so that everybody has the cards. Everybody can look once a year and see, oh, this is who gave X amount of money. Then the public and journalists can form their own conclusions. But I accept that if it looks too much like a campaign, uh, it probably ought to be prohibited. And this would also 
I think, unravel. Groups such as those who have contributed to anti-pipeline um, groups mm. in Canada, activist groups, if they're getting money from abroad, at minimum, people ought to see where it's coming from and who's donating it. It is a uh, it is a fascinating story, and I, I, I'm not I think you may be right. I don't want to jump the gun here, but you do wonder what the next shoe will be that drops from the Globe and Mail if they have something else. And I don't know that this story gets better for the Liberals if there's anything more that comes. Uh, Gordon Holden. That's a question. Can I ask ask just one little tiny thing? Please. I'm made nervous by leaks of top secret material out of CSIS. They've got huge powers of surveillance. They can read people's email with, with, with warrants. They can do all kinds of things. This is not the way. It should be the government dealing with that information from the get-go without having to leak top-secret material into the public. Even in the States, where they had the big kerfuffle with the documents that were left with former presidents and current presidents, etc., the actual contents were not revealed. Here, here we have the contents revealed, mm. and of course we need to act upon it or take it into consideration. But better still, if government did this directly and kept the secret secret. Gordon Holden, Director Emeritus of the China Institute and a Professor of Political Science at the University of Alberta. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. On Twitter right now, just a few minutes ago, actually, Alan Alda put up a very simple post. Just says, 40 years ago today with a heart on it. Alan Alda, of course. Star of MASH, the series MASH, which many people consider the greatest sitcom of all time. We can debate that. Certainly the sitcom that had the hugest ending. What was it? 102 million people, I think, was the number tuned in for the finale. That finale was 40 years ago today. Series finale of MASH. When they all left Korea and headed home and uh, it was funny and it was emotional and it was... You know, it was all those things that you would want in a in a finale, all those things that every single series that's been around for a while strives to hit, all those marks. Well, they don't all do it. Some do. Some do. Not all do. But we're asking you right now, because you've all watched TV shows, you've all been in love with certain TV shows or even liked TV shows and then been blown away by the finale or totally turned off, whatever. What's the greatest or worst, your choice or both, greatest series finale of all time? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Want to hear from you. The greatest or worst TV series finale of all time. 905-645-3221, star 9900. Those are the numbers where you can talk to us. Or you can text us, 905-645-3221. There are all kinds of different webs. And by the way, if you're calling, be patient. We'll get to you as fast as we can. And if we run out of time in this segment, we'll stick around and do the next segment. So call now and you can you can get in here. So we, we'll talk to everybody. Um, there are lots and lots of different websites and lists of best finales. And there are lots of different answers for what are the best. You're not going to have seen all of them, obviously, uh, unlikely anyway, you're going to have seen all of them. Some are, some of the ones that I'm looking on the list, and I won't give them away yet. I'll hear from you in just one second. Some of these huge shows that you've probably seen or you know about. Others, to my surprise, some, I won't say little shows, but less gigantic 
shows that people really rave about? What's the best series finale of all time? And MASH is an acceptable answer, by the way, if you want to say MASH. Now, by the way, I don't know if Will has it queued up. We were talking Lisa Pileski, who is here at the station in the newsroom. Lisa Pileski is an enormous MASH fan. I don't know how. She's too young to have even watched MASH. She is not 40, I assure you. But Lisa Pileski, massive MASH fan. Here, we we talked to her earlier today, just for a few seconds here. Here's her thoughts on why the MASH finale is the greatest ever. For someone like me who wasn't born when MASH aired, I've been so lucky to discover the show through streaming, which I did last year. And I've since developed friendships with other young fans like myself who see the enduring power of the show. It's about a bunch of ordinary people who are thrown into extraordinary circumstances and must survive despite everything. It's about the horrors of war and needless destruction caused in countries where citizens become innocent bystanders amid a global conflict between superpowers. It's about fighting to make a positive impact when you're part of a larger destructive force trying to do some good when there's so much bad around you and it's about the people you meet the families you built when all you can do is cling to each other and help each other survive the world has changed a lot in the 40 years since goodbye farewell and amen aired but unfortunately it hasn't changed in many of the ways it should which is why mash still appeals to new audiences today wow that was really deep and really good because I was just thinking, oh, it's a funny show. But, you know, there you go. Lisa, much more depth than I brought to it. But here we go. One turn to you. What's the best or worst series finale ever? Let's start going down because the lines are full. Lynn is up first today. Lynn, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Excellent. What would you pick at the top or bottom of your list? At the top would be Mary Tyler Moore. That, radio, you know, what a great station, choice. Yeah, the radio station was sold. Uh, no, the TV station yep. was sold. And they all came together, and they had a huge, big hug. Yep. And then Mary just, she's the last to leave the um, the TV station. She took the, takes a look backwards, and then she turns out the light and closes the door. I, I, you know what? I had my list of my best three ever, uh, and Mary Tyler Moore was one of the three. So you're, uh, you and I are thinking alike on that one. That was a fantastic one. Thank you so much for the call, and that was a great choice to start us off. Thank you. Let us go to Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie, how are you today? Hello, Anne-Marie. One more time. Anne-Marie, are you there? Hello? Hello, Anne-Marie. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. (laughs) What would be your choice for either the very best or very worst series finale of all time? My very best, but this is going... You thought MASH was 40 (laughs) years ago. This one's going back further than that. Okay. Okay. The Fugitive. The final show of The Fugitive in 1967. Wow. 1967, excuse me, where they finally got the one-armed man and David Jansen, his, Dr. Kimball, was exonerated. He was not charged with the murder of his wife. I thought, I was only a kid when I saw that show, and I thought, I like this because I got all the videos of it and whatnot, and I thought, hey, this is the greatest till football come along and knocks it out. <laughs> and, then, and then Dallas, I thought, oh, come on, Really? There you go, Anne-Marie. That's a great job. I'm going to have to watch it now. That that predates me, but I'm going to have to watch it for sure. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for the call. I appreciate it. Yes. Oh, yeah. Will you be on on your show at 7 o'clock? Uh, not tonight, but I will be tomorrow. Oh, you mean I can't talk to I can't talk to uh, Ben tonight? Not, okay. We'll talk again soon, Anne-Marie. Thank you for that. See, we love it. People can call in. Well, there's always stuff going on here on CHML. Uh, let's go to John. John, how are you today? 
Hi, Scott. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. Excellent. How are you? I'm terrific. What would you put at either the very top or very bottom for best series finales? The best series finale of all time. Yes. The show on TV all time occurred back in 2007 in May. And I'm Cheers. No. Sopranos. Sopranos. All right. That was, you know, Sopranos was, now, John, you tell me if the same thing happened to you that happened to me, and I don't want to give away. If people haven't seen the end of Sopranos, by the way, before we talk about this, spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. So plug your ears or go la, 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 la or something so you don't hear this for the next second. I thought something had happened to my PVR. I was like, how? I, I just got cut out of the end. I missed the end of it. But yes, that was that was an amazing ending. Yes, yes, and I recalled it uh, quite well. We were all at my uncle's house, packed, watching it, and everyone yells, what happened to your TV? What's <laughs> See? going on? Same what, thing. What's all the cable company? Same thing. Yeah, it was, uh, it, it caught us all, but it was a terrific ending. John, thank you so much for the call. I really appreciate it. Great choice. No problem. Uh, 905-5. We've got to take a break for the news in just a second or an update. But uh, first, let me give you the numbers again. 905-645-3221. Star 9900 if you'd like to chat with us. You can also text 905-645-3221. We are going to keep you on hold. We're going to pick this up after the news update. All right, so don't hang up. Don't go anywhere. Keep calling if you want to get in. Right now, though, Dave Woodard is standing by with an update on what's coming up in the news at the top of the hour. And by the way, before that, Dave, what's the best series finale ever? Best series finale ever? Game of Thrones. There you go. There's Dave's choice. We are continuing talking about the best series finales ever. MASH, 40 years ago tonight was the series finale of MASH. And we're asking you, what would be the top of your list? Or if you want to give us the very bottom of your list, uh, we had a text here from Kevin saying the very bottom, the very worst, the Sopranos and Game of Thrones. So we've already had Sopranos and Game of Thrones on someone else's top of their list. Kevin says, no, no, that's the bottom. So he different different strokes, right? 905-645-3221 or star 9900 or send us a text 905-645-3221. What is the best or worst series finale? Any TV show ever. Last one, the wrap up. What was it? Tony is up. Tony, how are you today? Not too bad. Excellent. A little, little uh, forgetful. I got some timers here. That's okay. That's okay, Tony. What's the best or worst series finale ever, in your opinion? In in this series uh, of the time, they had uh, the Ghost Whisper on and Bell Book and Candle and all those kinds of things. There was one. I can't remember what its name was, but it was Alice Dubois was a, a woman. She was married, and uh, she uh, she was able to see uh, scenes in her sleep and then help the police. Oh. Uh, it, it was on for quite a number of years, about uh, five, six years. All right. Well, but someone... When they ended it, it uh, they did the, the final program, but the classic, uh, the husband uh, walked through the... Uh, scenes are uh, in the scenic uh, production area and said goodbye as they shut down the lights. Okay, I think that was the show called Medium? Yes! Medium, there you go. All right, excellent. Tony, thank you for that. Great, uh, great choice. Let us go to 
Anne, who has waited very patiently. Anne, thanks for sticking around. What would be your choice, Anne? Well, I'll tell you something. I'm dating myself, but we took our kids to see at the Smithsonian the, the set for MASH. Yeah, oh, really? Was, yeah, but The Sopranos, I have to say, was our favorite. We got so excited, we called our son in Massachusetts <laughs> to see what happened at the end, because it left us hanging. Because you thought your TV had broken. We thought something had gone wrong. <laughs> everybody did. It was it was great. And then all of a sudden, everybody realized a few minutes later, oh, wait, no, no, that was supposed to happen. Uh, and what an ending. What, what an, ending. an ending. What an ending. And thank you so much for the call. Really appreciate you sticking around. Sorry for making you wait. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Uh, 905-645-3221. Star 9900, or you can text us, 905-645-3221. Let me go through some of the texts here we've got. Uh, Ed says The Fugitive. So we have, that's our second choice for The Fugitive. I'm going to have to watch this show. It goes back a few years, but uh, I will, I'll have to check that one. Uh, Willie says New Heart, where he wakes up next to Suzanne Plachette and says it was a dream. By the way, all these, spoiler alerts, I grant you, but surely, you know, for some of these, they're 30 and 40 years old. If you still haven't watched it yet, I think the statute of limitations on spoilerisms are gone. Uh, Mike, here's a good one. I didn't think of this one. And I don't know. This is, the, you know, some people may say, well, that's not cool. Hey, the Golden Girls. The Golden Girls had a great ending where, where um, uh, Dorothy, right? That was uh, B. Arthur. Yes, goes off yes. and gets married. And um, see, I know I might know my Golden Girls. I live in a household that uh, has Golden Girls fans in it. So I'm, I'm familiar with my Golden Girls. Uh, let's see. Uh, the best ending to a series by far, says Chris, is Mad Men. Ooh, that was a good one. Where John Hamm, not John Hamm, whatever his character name was, is sitting on a hill as a hippie now composing that Coca-Cola commercial I want, I'd like to teach the world to sing. <laughs> All right? That was it was a great that, ending. Though. That is fitting. It that was a great fitting. ending. Uh, another choice here. I don't have a name. Best finale, Newhart. And um, Andy, I don't like how The Sopranos ended. <laughs> okay? <laughs> so, again, another choice against it. Let me throw a couple more really quick. You go first. I've, I've got uh, two. I've got one for the best, honestly, yes. and it's a little cliche. I think that Breaking Bad had that one was, of the best endings. That was what Crystal I was just going to say. Oh, yep. that is a phenomenal scene. Yep. I'm going to go a little... Um, I don't want to say it's too obscure. It's quite popular in its country of origin, but there's a show... Uh, that called Neon Genesis Evangelion. It's a Japanese show. The last two episodes are notorious because the creator, Hideaki Anno, had a mental breakdown and was not turning scripts in on time. And it's an animated show. So when it came time to air the final two episodes, half of it was in like sketches and and pre-animation compositions. It was just a, a nightmare of an existential crisis. Wow. That, I, so so you have taken us down a path I never expected us to go down. Japanese anime mental breakdown finales. Okay. <laughs> I still like it, but hey, it's very notorious. I had not expected that one. The other one that I would put up there as a really good ending of a series was Cheers. Some people didn't Ooh. like Cheers, but I liked the ending of Cheers. I thought Ooh. it was good. The ending of Frasier as well. That one's great. 
I can't even remember what happened in the ending of Frasier now. But don't tell me because I'm going to have to go and watch it because it's a great show. The Paramount other one, TV Plus. The, the other one that will always, and I said this a few minutes ago before we started this one, the one that I just, I can't decide what I think of it because I loved the series. I loved Lost. Can't decide if Lost had a great ending or a disastrous ending. But the point was, I don't think they had any way out. After that first episode, there isn't really a way that you can wrap it up properly aside no, from the – I don't the, think so. I don't think so. Yeah. And if you've never watched the series Lost, make a point of that one. But, you know, sort of plan on being confused for seven seasons or six seasons or whatever it is. And then maybe less confused at the end. I, I don't know. Uh, well, that is our time. Unfortunately, that is our finale. For today, anyway. Uh, thank you to Will for all of his good work and keeping us on the air. Thank you to Liz for a terrific job lining things up and to all of our guests for, for doing a magnificent job, as they always do. But mostly thank you to you for listening. We do appreciate you taking time to spend some time with us today. Thankfully, it's a safer drive, apparently, today outside. So be safe getting home. We will talk to you soon. Scott Thompson, back tomorrow. I'll talk to you tomorrow night. Have a great evening. And boom goes the dynamite. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.